Hello and welcome to the Revolve Commercial Show. In this show, we take a deep dive into commercial property, conversations with experts in the field, education in commercial real estate, and I share examples of case studies of how to master good commercial acquisitions. My name is Mish Daniel, and I'm the founder of Revolve Commercial, where wealth revolves around you. We've worked with thousands of commercial property owners and have been best known for helping our clients to build wealth, earn great cash flow on autopilot through commercial real estate. If you're interested in speaking with our team to see how we can help you to get your wealth to revolve around you, go to revolvecommercial.com.au. Hello and welcome back to another one of these truly exciting episodes. Today we are going to be talking about buying or refinancing and we have got a very special guest with us whom you've never heard on our podcast before that I'm going to introduce you to in just two minutes time and this is a mortgage broker's guide to smart commercial decisions. So with that any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Bernadette Christie, who is my special guest today. Bernadette, welcome and thank you for joining me on this special show. Thank you, Mish. Excited to be here. Bernadette, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your business, and in one minute, tell us what you do and how you're going to help us today. Of course. So I'm Bernadette Christie David, co-founder and mortgage broker at Atelier Wealth Mortgage Brokers. We've been operating for seven years now and I'm an ex-accountant. So I have a strong understanding of financials. And in my seven years, I've been working really closely with my self-employed clients, clients looking to buy commercial property and also properties in the SMSF as well. At Atelier Wealth, we truly believe investing in property is the key to building intergenerational wealth and building a legacy for your family. So we're very pro-property here, as you can imagine, and we're looking for all the ways to find a yes. Awesome. Well, I'm right on track with you there, 100% agree. (laughs) So thank you very much for taking the time and spending this time to speak with us and our audience. So we've got a couple of interests and a couple of questions that have come through from our our clients basically have asked a bunch of questions. We cherry pick those questions and we'll go through them. But before we do, today's show is all about factors to consider when deciding whether to buy a new property or refinance an existing one, how mortgage brokers can help investors make informed decisions on purchasing and refinancing. And we're also going to be covering some real-world examples of successful buy and refinance decisions in commercial property investing. Okay, so all good with that? All good. Looking forward to it. Let's jump in. Cool. Let's jump in. So we've been talking about uh, financing commercial property and the debt servicing ratio. So Tell us a little bit about the debt servicing ratio. How does it work? What are the percentages? And for those in the audience that don't know what the debt servicing ratio is, if you wouldn't mind, just explain to them what it is and how the bank and the mortgage brokers work on that. What does that look like? Absolutely. So a debt servicing ratio is a way the bank can calculate, can you repay this loan back to us? There's two key ratios that they look at. One is the debt servicing ratio and the other is the interest coverage ratio. They're both very similar, but I'll just outline those for the listeners. Mm -hmm. So a debt service coverage ratio, it measures a company's or group's ability to pay back the principal and interest repayments of that loan. For an interest coverage ratio, The bank is not looking at the principal and interest repayments. They're only looking at the interest repayments. So there's sort of two ratios. One, they want to see can this group or this client or this business pay back the principal and interest repayments. Mm -hmm. That particular ratio sits usually at about 1.2 to 1.25 times. So so correct me if I'm wrong, let's say your debt is a million dollars. 
they're going to take a million dollars and, and calculate by 1.25%, right? That's right. So like in terms of, I did a little quick summary. So if I can take you through, I did focus on the interest coverage ratio because that's one that they use more commonly. They want to okay. see if you can cover the interest repayments. So say your business or your group had a net income of $120,000. So you earn $120,000, it's relatively low, right? And you had a loan of $800,000. Say the rate's 9%, bit high, but we'll just go with that. Don't know where rates are going right now, Mish. So your interest-only repayments for the year is $72,000. So what we do is we take your income, $120,000, divide it by $72,000. We get a ratio of 1.6 times. Something like that for interest coverage ratio Interest coverage ratio is two times. So that's sort of an example. That business does not have enough income to meet the interest coverage ratio. So we'd either need to look at boosting their income by looking at their group position mm -hmm. or lowering the loan amount. So if you're going to be lowering the loan amount, you'd be shifting the loan to vendor, the LVR, from possibly 80% down to 70%. That's right. Correct. So you might have to kick in a little bit extra cash. You might have to look at a lower purchase price. A few different options. So in nine times out of 10, it's tipping a little bit more cash because by the time you've got there, you're pretty stuck in terms of price. Price has been negotiated and we're running to the finish line. Yes, that is correct. Exactly. But it also highlights, I suppose, as well, Mish, something that's super important in the commercial space is to get pre-approved before you make an offer on a property. Now, traditionally in commercial, you couldn't really get pre-approval. Is that happening in a in a bigger way nowadays? It is. It's not called a pre-approval. Depending on the bank, they may call it a discussion paper, but it, it is essentially the same type of thing. I know there has been reluctance in the past for the pre-approvals to come through, but as more and more people are investing in commercial, it's becoming an asset that Aussies are, are leaning into more. I think the banks are seeing that there is a requirement to give some sort of understanding of like, hey, guys, you can at least go ahead and do this in theory. So what we see is those being called discussion papers. Okay. Okay. So that's really good to have. What we usually do is our buyers will have a conversation with the brokers and the brokers would set a budget, a target, a uh, particular loan that they feel they could achieve and based on that but it's not cast in stone I mean not all lenders you know come to the party when it comes to crunch time that's quite a ticky little space to work in isn't it it's a very delicate dance in commercial it's something that requires if you live in a world of black and white and you like your t's crossed and your i's dotted commercial you need to lean into the gray you need to lean into the art of lending as opposed to the science of lending i'm so pleased you said that because often we would say to our clients it's probably not the space for you to be you know going into if if the, as bernadette has just said you know it's there's a lot of gray area and there's a lot to be learned it's uh, not as easy as purchasing residential put it that way absolutely absolutely that's so, so true yeah, there's a lot to be learned along the journey. Mm. Okay. So, okay. So with regards to the bank and how bankers change their policies, we were talking earlier about hedging policies and the various different names that you have for hedging policies. Yeah. Let's discuss that because banks have got their own terms. What would the other terms be for hedging policies? Yeah, absolutely. So... Another term you might hear is something like an assessment rate. So when you have a, a loan, residential or commercial, there is the rate that you are paying, you agree to. For Resi at the moment, it's sitting around 6%. Commercial, it's maybe 6-7%. In the bank's calculators, they don't use the rate that you pay to them. They add a buffer. They increase that rate anyway from two to three times the actual rate that you will pay. Why do they do that? It's they're factoring in any future rate increases that could happen. Now, we could argue in this space, hey, we've reached the top of the cycle. So why do we have to add this 2 or 3% buffer? 
beauty of commercial is in some instances, if your rate is much lower, you can actually ask for waivers and ask the banks to bring that assessment rate down, which might be sitting at around 10, 9 or 10% and bring it down to be a little bit closer to your actual rate. And how keen are they to do that? I mean, what criteria would they need in order to do that? Or what, yeah. would, what would they ask for in order to do that? Because, I mean, let's face it, we all want a reduction in our rates. So um, how can we get that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's going to be having a look at your current rate. So if you are looking to refinance, what's your current rate? Is it quite low? Can we look to take that to another bank, show them that you've, you've got the history there to pay? Again, it comes down to the security. What type of security is it? Is it a, a property that is attractive to a bank? Do you have a good tenant in there? Mish, I know your clients, you normally do. You've got tenants that have long leases in there. Banks love long leases. That's your Don't we all? Don't we love that secured income with CPI increases every year locked in? Absolutely. <laughs> and it over. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a couple of, there's quite a few different things that they will look at. And I think it's always really important in any property that you own, residential, commercial, to be keeping a really close eye on what that rate is. Sometimes we do set and forget. And it's super important to be working with your bank, your broker, whoever is your financier to make sure, hey, are we getting an active rate discount on this? Something that some clients aren't aware is that banks are actually, the bankers, commercial bankers are incentivized by the profitability of the loans in their book. So they're not incentivized to go out to you with an active discount you must be proactive. So either through your broker, getting the bankers to get the discount or going to your banker directly and ask for the discount and say, this is what we're seeing. Can you guys help us to get a bit close to what's on the quotes to the market? So how can we motivate our bankers to be giving us that discount? Absolutely. There's this thing called a discharge for Mish and we don't <laughs> want to throw it in anyone's face. But that's definitely throwing maybe some sort of concept like that out there. They don't want to lose your lending, right? They don't want to lose you. So if we're going to leave, possibly, they're going to be a little bit more incentivized to look at your uh, rate. Tell us a little bit about that discharge form, what it is and how it works. Just so the listeners, can anybody who's feeling the pinch on their mortgage rate right now go and ask for a, a discharge form. How does that work and, and why would there be an incentive to the bankers to use that? What is it? Absolutely. So a discharge form is a form, one or two pages where you fill out and you say, hey, I'm refinancing, I'm leaving you and I'm going to another bank. You normally have to tick what bank you're going to and provide some basic details. When that gets lodged to your current bank, there's all these alerts that go off in the banker's background saying, hey, your client's leaving, go out and save it, save the deal. Ah, beautiful. We don't want to lose this client. So it's a little bit sneaky if you actually don't have anything lined up, but I think we're in an environment where we do have to look after ourselves. We have to look after our rates. And let's be honest, the banks are, I love banks because so they give us the money, but they are posting record profits so they can bring our rates down a little bit. Oh, absolutely. They're just waxing it, uh, greasing their palms and saying, thank you, and off we go. So, yeah. And if you don't ask, you don't get. So, absolutely. The worst they say, Mish, is no, at least we tried. <laughs> I love that, Bernadette. Thank you. That's a sneaky little bit of information. Now I'm going to be asking you for some more sneaky information as we go. These <laughs> <laughs> the kind of burning hot tips that everybody wants to know about and, you know, Let's face it, we all want to pay less. Mm -hmm. And we should be. So, yeah. So, shading policy is something that the banks do as well. Just explain a little bit about the shading policy. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different sort of shading policies we can talk about. So, one is in the calculators, if you have rental income as, as one of the calculators, they can shade that rental income for a commercial. So what does that mean? What does that mean? they discount whatever rent you get in their calculator and they reduce it. So they might say, you know, you've got a commercial property, you're earning $5,000 a month from it. They might say it's an industrial property, it's a little bit higher risk. 
will only accept 80% of that income. So they'll shade away 20%. 20%, okay. Correct. Is there anything that we can do about that? Not really with the shading. That's a set policies that those banks have. And then another shading that they do is, and we're going to speak about it in a little bit, but it's about forecasts that we provide to the bank. So if, if we're running a business, banks often will ask for a cash flow forecast. So they'll ask for our historical financials tax returns, but they also want to know where's the business going in the next usually 12 months. Hmm. If we provide forecasts, they will shade that income that we've provided to them. Now, there is a little bit that we can do about that shading. We can provide really detailed notes about our forecast, how we pull those together, what are our assumptions, what are our plans for growth in the business, all those sorts of things. So it's really specific to business owners if they are providing forecasts as well. Okay, so if we translate that into uh, commercial property, for instance, you know, commercial property really is running a business. So let's take a multi-tenanted property with maybe 10 tenants. Let's keep it simple. Yeah. In that instance, would it suffice? Would they be satisfied if you gave them the tenancy schedule? And if you've got a couple of vacancies or something, maybe anticipated filling those vacancies, would they accept that as some sort of a forecast? With the tenancies, it's going to be case by case by bank, right? Um, yep. They really do like those leases to be filled. But again, if we've got like a, if it's a short-term issue and we've got people lined up, we can talk to that, right? If it's like it's been vacant for a few months and we're, you know, showing no sign of the finding tenants, well, we're going to have to include that in our forecast as well, right? So it really is, it really is painting that real picture and giving them an overview of like, what are you doing with the vacancies? How are you managing that? When do you expect there to be a tenant in there? All right, it's going to be a matter of two, three months, or it's going to be a matter of 12 months. That's a totally different story. How do we paint that picture for the assumptions that we put in and how do we explain that to, to the banks? Okay, so it's pretty much like a proposal or, or an absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's really like thinking about it like, like a business plan, like our, okay. our forecast and our cash flow. Okay, excellent. What about security over unencumbered properties? So how do we get lending on unencumbered properties? Yes. How would we get lending on unencumbered properties, basically? It's relatively easy. If it's a commercial property, so there's no lending at all, you hold the title, your solicitors hold the title, we'd just be going to the bank, we'd be saying, hey, we need to pull out this much equity because we have plans to do property one and property two. This is the the lease agreement for this property. These are the possible lease agreements for the properties we're buying. And the bank's happy. But now, okay, because we've had the situation before. I've had a client who had 19 unencumbered properties. Yes. And the first thing that the bank said is, you got no debt. Yeah, they wouldn't touch him until he actually put a mortgage on at least one of those properties and did an equity drawdown on the property. Have you not had that sort of a, a situation with the bank? Most of the, being my space, a broker, most of the clients I'm speaking with have debt, whether it be a residential mortgage, the commercial property mortgages. So I haven't had a client who has 19 properties that has no debt. So definitely a client I'd like to speak to though. <laughs> <laughs> stick around, Bernadette, stick around. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a really interesting thing because if I hear that to me, my common sense alarm goes off. I go, I've got a really savvy, wealthy client, mm -hmm. understands property, understands how to manage money. Sometimes you get curveballs thrown at commercial where they yeah. say, well, you don't have any debt. They, they want to see that you have an ability to maybe make those repayments and see that you have that ability to make the commitments. But with 19 properties, I think he'd be fine or he or she would be fine. So. One would think so. One would think so. A bit of a stumbling block for him. He didn't want to want to take out debt on any of those properties. And incidentally, those properties were residential. So he was coming into, into commercial, you know, from those properties. It was a little bit of a, a brick wall for him to get through that. I think that sort of speaks to an experience that we had recently. If I can share, we've just purchased one of our, our commercial property, our, our first commercial property, which is an office for our business. And it was originally a no. 
But when we went and we put forward our case and I went through back to the bank that we had selected and I had a very detailed cash flow forecast along with a business plan and our plans for the business into the 12 months and beyond the plans for the property to add value, put a fit out in. And we turned that no into a yes. So you that. Well, this is commercial lending. You, I've heard you say this before. One of your superpowers is tenacity. <laughs> it's, it's grit. I wish we're on the same page. That's my middle name. I just don't take no. Why is it a no? How do we turn this into a yes? Yeah. Because this yes is, it's, you know, it's the first, you know, it could be the first foray into commercial. It could be the fifth property in commercial that then sets you up to go again. And if you have an eye for commercial property, you, you can see something that not a lot of other people or investors can see. But a lot of clients play that resi space. Yeah. Commercial is another game. And if you can get your head around lease agreements, obviously with your support. It's a business. Commercial, commercial. Yes. It's, it's a business transaction. You know, yes. when you buy residential, it's a domestic transaction. Everybody buys, you know, residential property. Commercial really is a, it's a business transaction. And I tend to find that people that are in business or people that have businesses or run businesses tend to understand a little bit better. Yeah, um, It's an easier journey. So yeah, you're 100% right. So good to know how you get your yes. I like that. <laughs> you never say die. Never give up. Never say die, Mish. <laughs> I never say die. And I say this to my clients all the time. Don't give up just because the journey is so difficult. Commercial is a little bit more difficult than uh, buying residential. But it is so rewarding, you know, when you get it right. So yes. okay. there we go. Okay. So... In a nutshell, what do banks really want to see? You know, what would be a bank's, ah, yes, absolutely, tick all the boxes, let's go. Absolutely. It's such a great question. I feel like at the moment in that, in buying commercial property, there are three sort of key areas commercial is falling into at the moment. So one is if you own a business right. and you are buying a commercial property for your business to move into. So that's like an owner-occupied commercial property purchase. Yeah. You'll buy the property for your business to operate out of. Similar to buying your own home. You're, you're going to live in it. You're going to run inside of it. Something like that, banks typically are looking LBRs around 70% at the moment. Obviously, this is all subject to change. Yes. And they're going to give you a 15-year load term. That's one. Then there is the investor commercial space. So you're going to buy a property, commercial property, and it's an investment. You're not going to move your business into it. You're going to keep the tenant that's in there. LBRs for those can be a little bit lower, 65 70%, depending on a few things, the strength of the tenants, strength of the lease, and then they'll usually align the loan term to the lease term. So okay. you've got a 10-year lease, you've got a 10-year loan term. It expires usually six months prior to the expiry of the lease. And you said that varies according to the length of the, the lease, the strength of the tenancy, whether it be a 60 65%, 70%. What do banks like to see there, ideally? What sort of lease term would equate, let's say, an 80% LVR? Yeah, correct. So something like an 80% LVR, if we are falling into a, which is the third group, it's a owner-occupied property. So a property you are buying as a business owner and you're going to move your business into it. If your business lending is under 2 mil, they will let you go up to 80% for those types of scenarios. Most of our listeners would be buying investment properties. Yes, so okay. So not necessarily owner-occupied, but everybody wants to know how can they get a higher loan? Absolutely. But what do they need to produce? Who do they need to be? What sort of finances do they need to have in order to get a higher loan on an investment property? Absolutely. It's such a great question. To get an 80% lend, it really is going to be going to those working, I would say, with a broker to go to all of the commercial lenders or the, the top ones in that space and asking what is your appetite at the moment. <laughs> it is something that changes constantly and it changes based on 
where is the security located? Is it a metro CBD location? Is it a regional location? So metro CBD locations are favoured over regional. What is the strength of the lease? Is it a 10 plus year lease? Who is the tenant? Is the tenant Apple or is the tenant a no-name convenience store? Yep. Adding a really, presenting a very strong property, tenant and case forward is going to boost that LDR up. Okay, so, so it's about security really. Totally. It's coming back to your the support that you provide, Mitch, Mitch which is that asset selection, right? The importance of that property and that you buy. Yeah, and it's from our perspective, what we like to see in a commercial property is probably what the banks like to see as well. We like to see security. We like to see an A6 tenant if we've got or a national tenant. We like to see a nice long lease or lots of pluses on the back of the lease. Absolutely. It's it's one, how do we make this deal so attractive to the bank and so they, they don't see any risk? Right. Okay. So the less risk they see, the higher they're going to make the loan on it. Yeah. That's it. What about the individual that's buying? I mean, what if, I'm being ridiculous, what if you're a truck driver, but you're buying a property that's worth $2 million plus and it's got a 10-year lease on it uh, and it's an ASX listed, would that make any difference? Does that affect the lending at all? And I'm using truck driver as a silly, truck driver is a bad one because truck drivers can earn really, really well. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I think everything impacts lending in in a commercial space. So, if you're, it, are you looking to service the loan just using the income from the property that you're buying? Are you looking to service the income using the property rental income plus your wage or plus your business's wage? If you're adding all those things in there, it makes it a really, it's a stronger deal for the bank. There's more income coming in. They know that they're not reliant just on the property itself. So the more you give them and the more risk you dial down for them, be it the income that you give across all facets, the stronger and the more lending we're going to be able to get. Okay. So this would be, I mean, those three areas that you spoke about would be a lease doc, where a lease doc is looking at the at the lease, 100% at the lease. That's uh, right. Or a loan doc or a full doc is those three different categories that you're talking about. So full would be looking at your entire serviceability as well as the strength of the, the tenant and the acquisition yeah. itself as well. That's correct. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, now, most, I think the quickest ones are probably a lease doc. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, um, lease, doc, lease docs are the quickest. We love them. You don't have to show anything else besides the lease of the property. The banks, depending on who they are, say you have a, a five-year lease, they'll usually do maybe around the loan term about 80% of that. So you get about four-year, possibly even up to the five-year for a loan. They'll work off the rental income that's listed on the lease. And if the property that you're buying can service just on the rental income, tick, it's a done deal. Super easy. So if you're someone who has got you know multiple properties or you've got multiple entities, lease stock can be a really, a really quick and easy way for you to get extra lending, particularly if you structure it correctly and purchase it in its own company, its own entity. Huh. Is that what you suggest to your clients? I'm not an accountant, so I can't cross into the lines of... I mean, you're not a practicing accountant. I'm not a practicing accountant, but absolutely. So when you're buying commercial property, having a separate company to purchase a property in a lending, from a lending point of view, is very powerful because I can go, here's a property that we're buying. It's in this company. Now the banks will do a credit search, they'll do a credit report. They'll see that I'm affiliated to a few other companies. I don't need to show them anything with those companies. I can just give them an accountant's letter saying those companies are trading profitably and able to meet their commitments. Just focus on the property that we're buying. And that makes it so easy for those the savvier, more astute investors who have multiple properties. Yes, there are extra costs in setting up a separate company and the ongoing accounting fees, but worth it in the terms of lending and what you can do. And also, I think in terms of exit strategies as well. Absolutely. Just makes it so much easier. It's seamless. 
with regards buying in entities and trusts, there's there's quite a lot of asset protection around that. And I know you're not an accountant, but you do know a lot about this. I always say all of those expenses are a tax deduction. Aren't uh, they? They sure yeah. are. So it's well worth getting that asset protection, making it a hell of a lot easier, purchasing your, your properties in entities. And I'm not going to suggest what entities and how it is because uh, I'm not licensed to give that information. Yeah. However, from my experience, you get it all back. So hell, why not? Absolutely, Mish. And and like you alluded to a little bit earlier about when you're exiting, I think that's the thing that people often forget because we, we always think about the entry and the exit is something that we we just don't think about. But what happens when we sell that commercial property? If we own that property in our individual name, whatever the gain is, I don't know, we could, maybe we made 500000 Like that's not unreasonable, right? No, no it's in commercial easy. Easy. So yep. if you've bought that in your individual name, you've got to add $500,000 into your income for that year. That's going to push you all the way up to the highest tax bracket, which I think we're at 45 cents now. If you buy in a company, what's the tax rate? It's 30%. You've just saved yourself 20%. That doesn't have to go to the ATO. We love the ATO. Absolutely. <laughs> no, we don't love this. Sorry. No, I'm going to take that back. Absolutely not. And the ATO is paying us. We love the ATO. Uh, that's true. <laughs> we understand the ATO. We have to pay. We have to pay our taxes and we have to, you know, the, the Australia has to run as a country. However, if we can save 20% in tax, that money is money for you to reinvest and to go again. And I think it's something, getting the right advice, the correct structure, when you do exit, it means we won't be paying any more tax than we need to. Beautiful. And that's exactly what, we, what we're wanting to be doing more and more of in all of this because I bring a lot of people that come into commercial real estate, they're a little bit iffy about that entity. But the more knowledge that they can learn and know about this of the tax and the tax benefit, you know, it's, it's money for jam, really. Yeah, absolutely. And all it required was in a meeting with an accountant, you telling them what your property plans are and then get them getting you set up in the correct structure. That's easy. And you know what? One of the other things about the accountant is I always say, and no disrespect to the accountants, but you do get accountants and you get accountants. And if accountants have never worked in the space of commercial, you know, if they, and I, not necessarily specialize, but we use accountants that specialize in commercial and development. And I can honestly, truly say that they are probably 75% above any other accountants that I've encountered because these guys are specialists. They know their stuff, you know, at at the drop of a hat. And they asset protection, they assist you, they help you, they help you save money from one entity to the other. Yes, so, absolutely. And that helps you from a lending point of view, doesn't it? It certainly does, absolutely. And I think it's the talking about that that trusted team and building that trusted team around you. This is a journey, particularly in commercial real estate. Who are your trusted advisors that you can call? Like I've had clients now that have been with me for five, six years and we call touch base just every six months. Hey, what's going on? What's the strategy update? Anything that we need to be you know, moving forward on a finance point of view? I'm sure you're the same with your clients, Mish. You know, it's about how are we building this this lifelong relationship because that's what it is. We want to be here for the long haul. We want to see our clients prosper because if they prosper, their tenants prosper, our businesses are able to keep thriving, everyone wins. And that's that's what it is. I mean, this is, I always say this is not a single sport. This is a collaboration sport. Yeah. Uh, the more people you have on your team, the more professionals you have around you, the better you're going to do. You know, it's like uh, world-class tennis players don't just have one coach. They have various different coaches. They've got health coaches. They've got eating coaches. They've got fitness coaches. You know, these. so it's exactly the same. You need to surround yourself with all of those professionals. So, thing, make sure that you're speaking to the right people <laughs> and getting the right advice. We've spoken about bank lens and forecasts and producing business plans. And that's very much what we spoke about being for, um, especially if you're an owner-occupier. 
the one thing that I did want to say, and purely for our listeners, from a listener's point of view, when you're purchasing a property, a commercial property, you can sometimes ask for the financials, depending on the circumstances. And banks would sometimes ask for the financials of the tenants. It's a little bit of a, a sticky point because the tenants, they don't really stand to value anything besides the fact that they get to stay where they are. Mm. So it can be a little bit of a sticking point. My suggestion is if you do need to ask for those financials, make sure that you ask them before you go unconditional. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> it becomes the seller's problem and not yours. Yes. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> yes. So we were talking earlier about having an accountant on the team and the importance of an accountant. And I always tell people the story about when I started out on this journey, I had an accountant who firstly didn't agree with commercial acquisitions and was trying to talk me out of it and promptly assisted me to go and make a massive loss because of the way in which he handled the process. So, and I went on an interview mission and interviewed accountants from all over the country and basically settled on the guys that, that we're with right now for that very reason. So is it good to have an, a, a specialist accountant on the team? Absolutely. I mean, yes, it's a no-brainer, 100%. Just like it's important to have a, you're buying commercial property, you wouldn't speak to a residential buyer's agent you'd speak to a commercial buyer's agent. You want to speak to someone who's a specialist. And it really will depend on your situation as well. Like if you've got a, if you've got a business, you might need someone who has expertise in trading businesses, but also commercial property. So you've got a very specific skill set. You might have an SMSF and you want that accountant to also manage your SMSF as well, which you can buy commercial property in as well. So it's really about, yeah, you understand what you have, what you want to build, and who is going to support you to get there. I'm so pleased you mentioned that about the SMSF because, you know, most accountants, you know, know how to deal with the SMSF for Joe Blogs. But when it comes to commercial lending through an SMSF, such a highly, highly specialized area, yes. I see so many people making the cardinal mistakes in SMSFs and they, they're very complicated structures. So we've had accountants that have used the wrong names, given the wrong entities. It has been a nightmare. So guys, if you are using SMSFs, please make sure that, that all your bells and whistles are 100% correct, that your T's are crossed and your, and your I's are dotted. Because when it comes to crunch time and you're telling the seller that, oops, um, the entity is the incorrect entity, they start getting pretty awkward about it and it could actually cost you a lot of money because if you're not meeting their deadlines you know you could be liable or absolutely and I think I'll just, if I can add on to that one Mish like an accountant's very important and also a very good conveyancer or solicitor that understands SMSF we've had clients that have had the wrong name put on the contract Ooh. by the solicitor or conveyancer and if we know in some instances that can cause double stamp duty to be payable in the instances that we've had, we've been very fortunate that the vendors have agreed to change the name that's been on the contract, but that is something that is so important. If you do not get that name on that contract right, that is just uh, money going out the door. Absolutely. And if you've got a seller who is not an easy seller or if it's been a difficult negotiation, heed caution. Because it's these little mistakes that they will use against you. Absolutely. And we've had circumstances like this before where the seller has just stuck his heels in and it's actually cost the buyer. It's cost the buyer time, effort, energy and money at the end of the day. Their legal bills just quadrupled, you know, yes. with all of this. So you definitely do need to make sure that you do have the right team and speaking to the right people that are tried and tested that have done this over and over again. Don't ever go to a solicitor that says, ah, oh, yeah, I do residential properties all the time. Or, oh, yeah, you know, we can do that easy. We've been there, done there. <laughs> no, thanks. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So mistakes when people are making loans, when they're filling out their, their loan applications, what are the biggest mistakes that you have found that you see when they're doing those loan applications? Ouch. 
<laughs> I I think it's not mistakes, but I I feel like it's people assume banks are very smart. Mm. Come with me as I go on this little rabbit hole journey, but all right, let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. But like I was speaking to one of the the bankers that I work with quite closely and, and he said to me, assume the bank is an idiot and assume that you have to tell them absolutely every single detail about who you are, what you're about, what your strategy is about. The more detail you can provide to them about you know, your investment property, your journey so far, your journey of where you're going, the more inclined they are to be able to understand what you're doing it helps the application process go smoother and just generally is a smoother process for everyone. That makes total sense. Now, most, uh, now, a lot of investors don't want them to know what entities they've got or investments they've got. They, they, they're quite, I don't know, withheld about that information. And quite honestly, guys, the bank's going to find out everything about you. Everything about you. Right down to the colour of undies you wear to bed at night. If Especially you're... in commercial. You, you, <laughs> they, they can do credit reports. They can see yes. what, what, uh, your, what companies you are the directors of. There's open banking now. They can see open banking information. So I think sometimes we have this, of course, we don't want to tell them maybe everything, but we need to tell them enough to get them to understand, get them to be pro us and say yes to us. When you say you don't want to tell them everything. Yeah. Like, for example, I had a client, they had a trading business and they were paying dividends to another company. The bank wanted to see this other company. The client, for whatever reason, didn't want to show those financials. That's okay. That's your prerogative to do that, right? But it's about talking about, you know, possibly this entity that you you are giving them the information on being really detailed about, you know, how does this business work? You know, what are the properties that we own? What are the tenants like? This is our our strategy. And if you can come to them and be really forthright in the information there that helps them say yes, and then you can go, no, we we can support this other entity by an accountant's letter saying it's trading profitably. And that might be enough because you have been so forthcoming with information about all the stuff that mattered. So in other words, you're not going to them with, kind of looking as if you're trying to hide anything. Rather go yes. transparently as possible and say, listen, I've got these five entities. This one does that. It pays that one. This one does that. Be as transparent as possible so that they don't have to go on a witch hunt. The minute you're withholding information, they go, oh, okay, we've got something to go hunting and looking for. So they go digging and scratching. I think yeah. that, you know, that's, that's really what it is. And it's like that in most transactions. Realistically, this is just another transaction, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a buy-sell transaction. You are buying credit from somebody who's selling you a loan. That is absolutely what we're doing. We're buying money for a period of time yeah. so we can invest in something else, get our returns, pay them back, go again, pull out equity, go again, go again. Yeah. So, and keep it flowing and going. So now, what little hints and tips can you think of that you can give our audience that would increase their borrowing capacity? What can people do to make their borrowing capacity look better? Mm, Such a great question. I think there's there's so many little things you can do. I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, one looking at refinancing your current portfolio. So what are the current rates that you're doing? Can you refinance to then get a lower rate to then help you borrow more money because you're paying a lower rate? That's number one. Increasing borrowing capacity, look at your repayment types. So are you paying interest only? Are you paying principal and interest? What is a strategy around your debt pay down across the properties that you own? So I'll um, stop you there for, for a moment. What yeah. are the advantages or disadvantages of interest only or debt and interest? Absolutely. I can, I'll answer this with an example of some clients yes. that I help. So they had an owner-occupied home and four commercial properties that were in Queensland. 
the original banker or broker that they went to structured everything as principal and interest. Now, for these particular clients and the their journey that they were on, I could see that that wasn't the right structure for them. And the reason is we always, always want to be paying down our owner-occupied debt first. That interest is not tax deductible. We don't claim any, can't claim rates notice, water notes, can't claim anything, right? It's personal expense. Right. So why would we structure property in a way to pay down our the the interest that we get to claim interest on and that's tax deductible in our trusts or our where our company wherever it's structured so we did a full restructure refinanced everything took their owner occupied to be the only p and i property everything else was interest only we then freed up the ability for them to then buy their fifth commercial property something that they didn't think was going to be possible for the next few years that's awesome that is really amazing that affect the interest rate over those uh, interest-only properties? Did the interest rate go up? It went up slightly, but we've got to remember this is also a cash flow game, right? Yeah. When you're paying principal and interest, you're paying the interest, but you're also paying down a portion of that loan. Yes. By changing it to interest-only, we free up all of that principal that we were paying off those four properties. Boom. Whatever cash that was can now go straight into paying off our owner-occupied property. Great. And what you said earlier is you want to be paying off your owner-occupied property debt first. Yes, always. Always because you're not getting a, a tax benefit from that at all. Absolutely. Okay. So that's a great way of looking at it. And I love what you said there about commercial property is all about cash flow. So you want to be making as much cash flow as, as possible. And it's almost like uh, commercial property is a vehicle. It really is a vehicle. You want to get that that cash flow out of it. And if you need to refinance it and refinance it and refinance it, and realistically, on a, on a scale of things, the commercial property does rise with, with the, the gentrification of the area. You know, So if you're buying a commercial property in an area where, where the market rate is rising, your commercial property is going to rise as well. And I think besides the the GFC, where commercial property dropped on average by ten percent, residential properties I think dropped the the bottom dropped out and then right down to about eighty percent. People still need to work, and this is the beauty about commercial, you know. So in bad times, yes, stuff happens. I'm not saying that it's it's the crystal. I'm not saying I'm looking to the crystal ball, but hedge your bets and use as much as that cash flow as possible. Yeah. Invest wisely, speak to the right people and get the right advice at the end of the day. Yeah. So we've pretty much covered off on most of the questions that our, our listeners have asked us. And we've spoken about entities and uh, borrowing capacity in entities. And that I just want to ask you one question. Borrowing in an entity... How different is it if you're borrowing in your own name, particularly for commercial? Are you going to get a better rate borrowing in an entity or would you get a better rate if you're borrowing in your personal name? Well, one of the differences is the bank's reluctance to lend if you're borrowing in your individual name to buy a commercial property. Now, why is that? When you are a solo individual borrower, you fall under the NCCP the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. And right. under that, you fall under like residential lending standards. When you purchase a property in a company trust structure, you don't fall under the NCCP legislation, which means, again, we're going back to that gray area. We have a lot more fluidity. There's a lot more flexibility in the lending. So my big advice is around structures. If you're buying a commercial property, really consider what entity you're buying in because possibly to get lending, to get a loan, buying your individual name is not the right way to go. So the disadvantage, understanding that it's in the NCCP, but why would that still be a disadvantage for a buyer? It's not for a buyer necessarily, but it's a disadvantage to tr if you want to get a loan. Bank will say to us, 
Well, this is an individual borrower. They're buying a commercial property. The commercial property falls under the commercial lending, but the individual borrower falls under NCCP and it sits in no man's land. Doesn't okay. sit in residential lending, doesn't sit in commercial lending. Okay. And bingo. There you've just hit the nail on the head because, again, when we talk about commercial, and you can second me on this, commercial is in a totally different department. It might be the same bank, but they've got different departments, different floors, different people even. Yes. Um, your residential people are right on the other side, on the west end, and the commercial people are right on the east end. Sometimes they don't even know each other. They, you know, don't know, they don't know each other. They're completely different teams. You're going to speak to people who are, they have totally different credit appetites, rules around the lending. So the bank, each bank, a residential will have a, a credit appetite. The commercial will have a totally different credit appetite. And those appetites also change with what's happening in the economy. So like going back a few years, banks didn't want to touch developers. Like it's still a little bit of that's around for some banks, some entities. Banks used to offer SMSF lending, the big banks. They all pulled out four years ago. Now we have to go to our non-bank lenders to do SMSF lending. It's a constantly changing space. And it's not something that if it worked this year, it may not work next year. That's why we have to do our research. We have to find what's going to fit for your strategy right now and give you that support. So one quick question with regards to the SMSF lending and going to second tier lending and the big banks pulling out, that was a little bit of a pain spot because the big banks went from lending at 60% down to 55%, down to 50%, down to we're not lending. Yes. And this is left wing of any question, but round about what sort of rates are you getting on our self-managed super funds in lending at the moment in yep. commercial? At, obviously subject to change, but at the moment anywhere from sort of around 7%, 7 to 7.5% is where the lending is sort of sitting for SMSF. So it is it is a little bit more expensive, but when you consider commercial rates, hey, it might actually be on par with that. It might be a little bit higher for the commercial SMSF properties. But benefit of buying in your SMSF and something that I so love is the tax rate that you pay when you sell. Again, we're talking about that exit strategy. And again, I'm not an accountant, so this is not advice, just experience. But when you sell a property in your SMSF and you're in pension, your pension phase, so you've moved from accumulating all your wealth, you say, hey, I'm retiring, and you move to a pension phase, you sell that property, you pay no tax. Beautiful. What what a beautiful thing. Yeah. Look, there's, there's, <laughs> that's great. It, it's fabulous. There are trials and tribulations for both. So there are advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are buying in an SF, then happy days. You can sell that tax-free and enjoy, you know, the cash out of that at a later stage in your, in your old age. But make sure you don't sit on that cash. You've got to put it into something else that it is going to support you for the next 30 years if you're retiring at 65. And the Correct. question is, where do you put that? Yes. Okay. Versus if you're buying in an entity, my advice to people is don't sell it. Don't sell it. Let it sit in your, you know, look after that property. Make sure that you've got the right property managers. Make sure those property managers are adding value to that property. And you want to keep that property until you're old and grey and hand it down to your kids or your, or your next of kin or whatever. You don't pay the taxes. Happy days. Make sure you set up those structures or your accountant sets up the structure correctly so that it can be passed down without any encumbrances. And it really goes back to that legacy piece, doesn't it, Mish? Like the power of property to build that legacy for our families. Property changes family stories. It gives you options. Commercial, the bankers love property. If you are secured and backed by property, they want to talk to you. If you do not have property to your name, they're less likely to lend to you. We love property in this country. The banks love it. The more we invest in it and, and can own it for us and our families, it's a game changer. Well, I think uh, property has always created wealth and has historically and will continue to do that. So I want to ask you one more question off the bat with regards cross-collateralizing. Mm -hmm. Now, we have some situations where I've got one client who's got 22 properties and he's cross-collateralized his entire portfolio. He's got, I don't know how many residentials and about two or three commercials in there. And the poor man, he's stuck. He is like, now nah, seriously stuck because every single property that he sells, 
because he wants to buy more commercial, the bank just goes, thank you, I'll take that. So how do you now, understanding, and just for our listeners, that the reason why people get caught up in this trap of cross-collateralization is when you refinance, the bank says, oh, I'll take that property, that property, that property, and I'll give you a far better rate. So how you get seduced into cross-collateralization. What do you suggest when, if one's in that situation, what do you suggest? Because right now I think a lot of people are feeling the pinch and are wanting to refinance and the banks are going, yeah, we love that. What do you suggest? (laughs) I am a firm no cross-collateralization and that might be really controversial and and the reason I say that is because when you want to sell that property you have to exit that property you've got five properties you want to sell one they're all cross securitized what needs to happen is the bank beside the one valuations on all four of those properties they need to understand the value of those properties where the LBR sits if your LBR has increased to a point that they don't like maybe you're over 70% or over 80%, you have to reduce that loan. Where does that cash come from? So it is very, very attractive and easy to be seduced by the rates. And I absolutely understand if it's necessary to do that, then you must. But we definitely love the ability to keep our properties separate. So the same bank can hold the properties, but we just want to be really clear about not crossing them because when we want to sell, we want to move on to the next one it became becomes really hard for the existing properties that sit with that bank. Explain the difference between the same bank holding it yeah. and cross-collateralizing it because I think that's where a lot of people get mixed up. Absolutely. So say I've got five properties and they all sit with NAB. NAB can hold the security and the mortgage for all five of those properties, but they can sit as standalone properties. Right. Where we get stuck is when the bank goes, We're going to take all of those and they're all crossed, which means the valuation of all five properties is grouped and then the LBR is grouped as well. So if we sell one and then we revalue the four and then the the value has come down, our loans haven't changed, we then need to kick in more money to lower the LBR to an acceptable amount, whatever the bank wants. You can get stuck. That's what is really tricky when we cross-securitize. Okay. And why do people cross-securitize? I mean, besides the lower rates, would there be any other reason why they'd be motivated to cross-securitize? I don't think, no. There's no motivation. I do think that the bankers are motivated to cross-securitize clients and possibly the owners didn't understand that that's what had happened with the structure. So being really clear, I think working with your broker or with your banker to say, we want to make sure that these are standalone, that would be something that I'd be really clear on in in the structure of how I want to have my properties and loans put together. So how difficult is it to separate, let's say you cross-securitize two properties with how difficult is it to untangle that? Valuations need to happen for the properties. As we know, if it was a residential property, that's not a big deal. It's a couple of hundred dollars, if anything at all. Commercial is a little bit different. We do have to pay for evaluation, depending on the type of property. If it's better than most, it could be one, two, three, four, depending on the size of property, to pay for evaluation. So you have to pay for those. We want to make sure those valuations come in, that the leases that we have for those properties are still, you know, got, got a good lease term. And then we'd be looking to separate like that. So it's an expensive exercise. And in this environment, people might not have those extra funds to pay for those fees. Okay, so it's, so it's basically a refinancing, going through the whole rock and roll again. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's no specific reason or way to separate that besides going through refinance again. Correct, yeah. And, of course, if you're pulling out of bank A, let's say uh, A and Z, you might not get the same rate if you're going to two different banks. Yeah, or it could be a really good opportunity to look and see, hey, if we want to uncross these properties, what other banks could we go to for a better rate? So it could be a good opportunity as well. Oh, well, yes, you can you can do a little bit of horse trading. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. That is jam-packed with the most incredible information 
I really appreciate you you spending the time and being with us today. And if anybody wants to know more information or reach out to Bernadette, please feel free to reach out to us at revolvecommercial.com.au and we'll steer you in the right direction. And if you are looking at a screen right now, you can see there's a QR code on the screen to book a call or get your free wealth grow plan. And we'll do the introduction directly to Bernadette so that you can get some more of this fantastic information and help you along your journey. Thank you so much, Mish. I want to thank you again for spending the time, for sharing your wisdom, and we'd love to have you on the chat again. I think we've just scratched the surface. There's probably plenty more that we can speak about. Thank you, and goodbye, and until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Revolve Commercial Property Podcast. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial, where we share weekly updates on positive cashflow commercial properties currently on the market and how to acquire them. So go to Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial or www.revolvecommercial.com.au.